First Peter 4, 16 through 17. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the uh, recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. morning. If you want to scribble this down in your notes, I, uh, Ezekiel 9 is an interesting read in light of that passage. It talks about this vision that Ezekiel has um, where the uh, destruction that's at the hands of the Lord starts at the doors of the sanctuary and goes forth. It's just an interesting read and I commend it to you. Uh, I don't have time for it today, but uh, it's good for you. And then the other cross-reference to that is in Jeremiah 25, which... Um, is the fulfillment of that. And so when Peter quotes that, um, that allusion to the Old Testament about judgment beginning in the household of God, uh, that's uh, an important word for us today because it sort of prepares our hearts um, for what's happening as we go into the world and we declare this truth to the world and we get reviled for it. And so we receive a certain kind of judgment uh, at, at the outset. And so just by belonging to Christ, by belonging to the church, by declaring the truth of Scripture, there's a judgment that's going forth in that. And so uh, complete this line, if you know it, it was the best of times, it was the, right, it's a famous line, the whole opening paragraph um, to A Tale of Two Cities uh, goes on to talk through a series of paradoxes which exist simultaneously. Just tune your ears for a minute to this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity or unbelief, if you want to think of it that way. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil, the superlative decree of comparison only. This story about, quote-unquote, two cities uh, is the reality that while things appear differently at different places, they're happening simultaneously. They're um, accomplishing what seems to be apparently different means, but they wind up at the same destination, which is sort of a, uh, an odd thing for us to think about or embrace. I've done a few of these optical illusions uh, before the sermon, so I have one more for you. There is uh, a picture of a young man tending his sheep, uh, resting against a trunk, and then there's uh, also two uh, houses 
that are next to each other in this uh, wooded area. But once you zoom out and you get the fullness of the picture, something else seems to appear in the same picture. Can you see the face of a man? Maybe Ron Burgundy. I don't know. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's the idea that once you kind of take the full picture and you take all the parts of it and you put it together, something else appears in its stead, and it's that the parts come together to accomplish the whole. So that's sort of what we're talking about this morning, going through Acts chapter 14. I'm going to try to get through verse 20. And I, this is ambitious uh, because there's sort of a, a divergent path. And I did not plan this, but this week uh, my mom texted me and she said, can you slow down while you're preaching? And I said, no, I have too much to say. But because it's Mother's Day, I will try to slow down. So because my mom asked for it, we get to stay extra long. So you're welcome. I'm just kidding. So we're talking about a tale of two cities, blessed suffering, something that exists at the same time. We're blessed to suffer, and we're called to be part of that. So um, we'll get to the text in just a minute, but I'll just jog your memory where we're at. They, um, they being Barnabas and Paul and their company. I should say that the other way around because Paul really has the prominent person in this text. And so Paul and Barnabas have been preaching throughout um, Asia and Galatia, and um, they were just chased out of Antioch. And so last we saw them, they were being persecuted, and they decide to leave and move on. They're shaking the dust off of their sandals, and they go forward. And so uh, this becomes a bit of a routine. They, they are going through, spreading the truth of the gospel, and leaving in their wake a little bit of frustration and anger, but also a church. Okay, And so this is what it is to be an evangelist and to go into church planting and missions. And so this is a little bit of the routine that develops. And so here we're going to look this morning at the paradox of the gospel. The paradox that is brought by gain coming through loss simultaneously. The same means of declaring freedom and, and, and telling people that there is freedom helps them recognize that they're actually in slavery. And so you can see that these two things are, are, are working hand in hand. And so the, the gospel of peace invites, for whatever reason, hostilities. And the call to unity in Christ and to be united to God creates separation and, and distinctions. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. So we'll get to the text. Let me pray first, and we'll turn our eyes there. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see clearly what you've um, put in your word for us, that it would um, teach us to see and discern the things that are happening in the world, and that we would find encouragement through the response that sometimes feels negative and discourages us, but that we would see um, that you overcome these things, that you've overcome the world. And so, Father, I just ask that you would speak through your word this morning. Just pray that I would be a vessel that uh, would be free from air, keep my lips from saying anything you do not want us to hear. And Father, I ask that you would help us to be those that are spiritual, that can receive your truths and not natural this morning. God, give us ears and minds and eyes and hearts that um, can see your glory and embrace your word this morning. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Thank you. All right, here we go. Uh, chapter 14. Starting verse 1, we read this. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, if we read this in isolation, we would get the sense that it was the overwhelming uh, superlative nature of the, the rhetoric that uh, caused this um, caused this conversion out of the Jews and the Greeks. The message, though, is is not the eloquence with which it was brought. It was the words of God that are being spoken. And we're told in Scripture that the, the message about God, the truths of God, cannot be understood. In fact, our natural minds are, are resistant. They're hostile to the things of God. And so to receive any truth would be to receive it uh, spiritually. And so that kind of goes back to different responses of last week. But here we see that um, the, the Gentiles and the Jews, they both respond to this. And um, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds uh, the Corinthians that it wasn't the way that he spoke that caused them to believe, but it was, um, it, it was God's power that caused them to believe. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he, he didn't try to woo them with, with uh, the, the rhetoric of the day. He, he didn't try to... Uh, impress them with his intellect. It says, I, I just decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message I brought. And there's a purpose behind it. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So the idea there, he's communicating, he didn't come as imposing. He didn't say, I'm the authority, listen to me. He, he came in uh, humility and meekness. Why? So that my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So it's important that it's not about the, the quality of the individual delivering the message. Through even the worst messengers, poorly relating the message of God can relate the truths so that they can be spiritually embraced. And so that's what we see happening here. Paul and Barnabas are just faithful to the message of God. They declare it, and many Jews and Gentiles both believed. But there's also another response to this. Just like we looked at last week, there's different kinds of soil, and they receive it differently. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So again, the problem here is that the message of God, the truths of God, are spiritually discerned. And without the help of the Spirit, our, our minds are intellect, our intuitions, our desires are all opposed naturally to the truths of God. And that's what happens here. That, that unbelieving Jews is actually uh, the, the word disobedient. They're disobedient and hostile to the word of God. So um, if you want to scribble it down in your notes, in 1 Corinthians later on, chapter 2, verse 14, um, Paul is talking about the fact that our, our natural minds are hostile to the things of God. And so there's a response to this hostility that comes. There's, there's some Jews that are believing and some Gentiles that are believing, but the, the unbelieving Jews, the ones that are disobedient, they stir up the Gentiles that are hearing this message and they poison their minds against the brothers. And so they remained, that they there is Paul and Barnabas. They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So, so get this. There's a response to this. There's hostility towards the message, and they're poisoning the minds of the Gentile believers. And so the response to the poisonous opposition is to remain. It's to, to stay planted, to stay put. And so the, the opposition that's being received 
is responded to in kind. So here's what I mean by that. They stay to teach the word because the opposition that's coming is teaching a false word. There's false teachers that are arising. So the opposition is false teaching, and so the response is in kind. It's bold declaration of the truth. They're boldly proclaiming things for the Lord, and this word then is being witnessed to by the Holy Spirit performing signs and wonders at their hands. So notice that the teaching comes first. The signs and wonders are the confirmation of those things, not the other way around. It's not signs and wonders, and they believed signs and wonders, so they taught. It's they taught, they believed, and it was confirmed with signs and wonders. So signs and wonders are not the, uh, the initial means of belief, and that's an important word for us to, to embrace in light of what we think of as what would cause somebody to move from unbelief to belief. Well, I have this impressive miracle. Just look here. That's, that's not what's happening here. And what's happening, though, is they're standing firm for the word of truth. The stand firm for the truth is, is a command that Paul gives continually to the church. He gives it to pastors. He gives it specifically to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3. He says, stand firm in the truth, and it's a military command. Stand, stand firm on the ground. Don't give up any ground. If we give up ground at the first sign of opposition, it communicates two things. One, the ground that we're standing on, we're not really all that committed to it, right? It doesn't really matter. We're not that we're not that convinced so as to die on this particular hill, right? So the more you cede ground to opposition, the more you communicate this ground isn't all that important. Also, the other thing he communicates is I don't really have a very, I'm not confident in my ability to oppose this. So you, you meet opposition, there's false teaching, somebody believes something untrue, and you go, I don't know if I can defend that, and then you back up a little bit because you're not sure that you can come against it. And so we, we constantly cede ground that we ought not to cede to the enemy, because we're not very committed to preaching boldly the word of truth. In the face of strong, open contradiction, those, the, the purpose of the strong and open contradiction is you, you see the result of it. It's poisoning the minds. And so the only antidote to a poisoned mind is the word of truth, the gospel of grace. That that's, that's what they're declaring, the witness to the word of his grace. Whenever false teaching appears and false teachers arise, they're always attacking the truth. But all truth belongs to God. So by proxy, they're attacking God himself. So that whenever you see um, heresies arise, like things that are historically untrue in the church, they're always based somehow around the person of of Christ. There's some question about whether or not he really is God or he really was man or whether he was really without sin or whether he really died or whether he was really raised or whether he's really at the right hand of the Father. See, all heresies are anti-Christ. They're anti-Christian. They come from a demonic mentality. So false teaching always is anti-Christ. And that's why John says there's many spirits in the world. Many have gone out. Anti-Christ has come. It's already here. So it's not a person. It's a spirit that's already in the world. And you can see it. Then many false Christs have come. And that spirit is something that we're commanded to, not recommended, not hoped for, but we're commanded to come boldly against We'll talk more about that next week. So they're, they're coming against, they're boldly declaring the witness uh, to the word of grace. And it says, but the people of the city then were divided. So the result of poison mind being boldly uh, opposed with the word of truth causes the city to become divided. And some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. So we have two camps, right? A line drawn in the sand down the middle. Which side are you on? And the idea that division is bad is bad. That's a stupid take. 
Not all division is good, but not all division is bad. Some division is necessary. Division is, in fact, a promised, a, a promised result of the truth. When, when Jesus told the disciples that uh, they were going to go out, he said, you're going to encounter all kinds of opposition and hatred because of me on account of my name. And as you go out, uh, uh, you, you, you might think that I'm coming to unify everybody. And I am, but the result of that is that there's going to be a division within households. There's going to be a division within the tightest and closest relationships, brother against brother, mother against son. He says in uh, Matthew 10, 35, in Luke 12, 51, if you want to scribble those down, I don't have time to read them today. But the first one, he says, do not think that I've come peace, but I've come to bring a sword. And then that sword he refers to again in the same way in Matthew 10 about the fact that I've not come to bring peace, but division, because the sword is what divides. And then th that idea of the sword being the word of God is developed further throughout Scripture. So the gospel divides. The truth divides. The word of God divides. And there's a temptation on our part to want to um, soften that blow, to nuance it. You guys know what, what third wayism is. It's, it's, the, it's the idea that, well, you know, historically we might say you're either an A or B, but I think C is really the middle ground, and we can all get along if we just embrace C. And third wayism is a way of saying, I, I don't believe that Jesus really had this figured out. I'm, in fact, more nuanced than he was, and I think that I can find this squishy middle that everybody can get along in. And that's, uh, uh, that's part of the poisoning of the doctrine of the church, is this, this third wayism, this soft, squishy middle. If you have a little bit of poison in your brownies, are you okay, like, finding that nuanced middle where it, it's, we'll just have a little bit of poison, we'll have a little bit of brownies, and we'll just consume it together, saying that I didn't have to, you know, try to figure out where it was. I didn't remove all of it. It's okay to have a little bit of poison in the brownies. No, nobody would embrace that mentality. Everybody gets the idea of not wanting something deadly mixed in with something that is good and warm and gooey, right? You don't want that. You don't want those two things together if you're going to eat them. And so, this reveals something about how we think about the truth because we're more willing to mix in a little bit of air with our truth that really has to do with your eternal security. Your, your eternal destiny is banked on this truth being pure and true. So it's important that we, we embrace division and what, what comes by way of the truth being declared. And truth is the word of God. Your word is truth. That's Jesus' own words. I don't have time for that, but it was a good story, and I promise I'll tell it next week. I promise. So division is necessary. Why? Because it separates truth from error. It separates true believers from those who do not believe. And if you're calling to a middle ground belief, then you don't know if somebody really agrees with the important things or not. So it, we must separate from the world. Come out and be separate. That's, that's what the result, the good result of division now, what you might say is the negative connotation or the negative result of division is that it brings opposition because now you've got two lines and people are facing each other on, on opposite sides of it. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. So verse 5 tells us when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews. That's an important idea. There's two factions that don't normally um, team up together. They align together and they decide with their rulers another group of people that the Jews historically would not have aligned with. So we got sort of three factions coming together. Why? 
so that they might mistreat them and stone them. Well, they learned of this, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. There's this idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's sort of what's being embraced in this moment. The, the Gentiles and the Jews historically obviously would not have gotten along, but in light of this new teaching that's coming in and kind of bringing everybody in together, they decide to align for the purposes of getting these new guys out of town. And so they used the leadership of the city to, to begin to persecute them. And they decide that they're going to mistreat them and stone them. Jesus told the disciples as he was sending them out that, that you go from town to town, and if they persecute you, you just flee to the next town. Shake this, take the dust off your sandals and move on. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That's exactly what we see happening here. And so there, there becomes a question on, like, when should we move on and when should we not move on? Because we're, there's times where opposition appears, and we see it in the beginning. There's some false teaching that crops up, and they decide to stay. They remain. They don't move on. But it's like once, uh, once physical opposition is going to happen, they, they decide to move on. Now, they're not quitting, and they're not running away. So you need to see here that moving on is not quitting. Those are not the same thing. Moving on is not quitting. We move on when God chooses to move us on. And there's not a hard, fast ABC rule for this. It's when God moves you on, you move on, but not for the purpose of doing something different. What you see is that they move on, and what did they do? They continued to preach the gospel, verse 7. They continued to preach the gospel. They continue the mission forward. We could use a little bit of speculation in that Paul already knows because he's been told through prophecy that he would bear the name of Christ before kings and rulers, and he hasn't done that yet. So maybe he knows this isn't my time, this isn't my hour, I, I'm not going to go down here. So they decide to move on. We, we don't actually have any insight into why they decide to move on. The important thing is, is not that they moved on, but that they, they moved on and continued to preach the message. I want you to also take something from this. In Revelation 21, there's a list of people that become worthy of the second death, which is thrown into fire. And among those sins are ones that you'd expect, like unbelief and adultery and being a liar and all of those things. But the, the surprising one, and it's actually first in the list, is being a coward. Be, being a coward is something that makes us worthy of, of, of the second death. And this word for coward has something to do with the idea of, of being afraid in, in life or in speech. So if you, if you think about that idea, it, it's something like this. If we're afraid to truly live out our faith in God, then that makes us a coward. And that means that we, we're not really embracing that as our faith. We're, we're, we're so worried about maybe the repercussions or the consequences of that that we don't actually live our lives in faith. We are meant, though, to live boldly, to preach and teach boldly, and not to be afraid of the risk or the danger. But let me help you with something. That doesn't mean the risk and the danger aren't real. That doesn't mean that the pain of suffering is not real. The, the, the risks are actually tangible. They might mean relationships. Like Jesus already promised, I'm going to divide houses. I'll divide brothers. It, it might mean life risk, like physical danger, which we're about to get into. It might mean relationship or finances. These are all real risks, but Jesus calls us to take those risks. Why? Because he's assured us that we have victory. 
but he only assures us we have victory in him. So that by holding fast to Christ is when we actually experience that victory. There's a risk-reward assessment there, but you only get the reward if you take the risk and remain faithful through it. And the way of faithfulness is not your white-knuckled holding fast to your way through. It's holding fast to Jesus, holding fast to faith. So the way we avoid cowardice is by Jesus. The way we get the overcoming, the way we get the victory is holding fast to the truth. All right. Verse 8 says, now they, they, so they arrive in Lystra. There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He, he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Um, so we, this, uh, this sort of feels like a, a, a tangent here, but it's an important idea. And so the first thing we need to recognize here is that whenever Luke spends ink, if you will, on giving you details, he wants you to notice something. In the last town they were in, they didn't give us any details. It was just signs and wonders. We don't know what signs and wonders were being done, but because he's taking a moment to say, hey, this is something specific that happened in this miracle here, it's, it's something that we, we need to pay attention to. So Luke customarily only gives the details that he wants us to stop and pay attention to, and also the kinds of details with which he wants us to focus on. So what is it that he wants us to focus on? Well, there's a couple things in this um, little miracle here. It's not little, but, you know, there only spent a few, three verses on it, right? So it's little in that sense. It's a short story. So there's, there's a couple things that might lead us to believe that he looked at this man, and he saw that the man had faith to be healed. And so Paul calls at him, hey, be healed, stand up. And that's, that's what happened, and that's not what happened. So let's spend a couple minutes here and see what happened. So when it says that the man was there and he had been lame from birth, and it says he, had, he was listening to Paul, that listening there is, carries with it the idea of repetitive or continual or like sort of a historic listening. So it's really, get the sense, however long they had been in Lystra, it's not, the, it's not day one Paul arrived and healed this man. That's likely. If, if anything, if it was on day one, it was after he had preached. He had been listening. He had been listening to the message of the truth, the one that they're declaring. And he's preaching, and this man is hearing it, and he has faith. This is something that we don't have explanation on, and um, Luke doesn't record it for us, and Paul evidently didn't tell him. But whatever it is that he perceives in the man is something that was visible. So it's a, sort of an imperceivable thing for us, but it was visible to Paul at the moment. And so he sees faith in the man. And the, the faith is for something specific. So what is it that Paul perceives by the Spirit's help in this moment? Is totally contingent on this one word that I think would cause us to lose the whole track of this miracle. So faith is not necessary to be healed. That's evident throughout all the scripture, there's lots of people that are healed without faith. There are people that are healed with faith. So it's, it's not a requirement. It's not a requisite. So it, it's not that uh, faith is the contingency for this miracle, that Paul saw that he had the faith, so therefore he healed him. That, that's not what happened. This word for made well, the only time in the whole New Testament it's translated as made well is right here. But the, this word is literally sozo, which, which is the Greek word that gets uh, in its derivative forms 
soter, which is savior. So save, salvation, all of these are, are, the, are this word, sozo. So I, I want you to sort of replace that thought or that idea with what happened in the text or what we're reading here. Paul's preaching, and this man had been hearing the message. And Paul looks out and he sees this man has faith. What kind of faith? The faith to be saved. The faith to be saved. Or he was saved. Or he had believed in this message. And this is what Paul perceives. And so as a result of this, Paul commands him to do something that he had not yet done. We get that one little detail in the beginning of this miracle that this man had been lame since birth. Not lame as in, hey, you're not very cool. Lame as in he couldn't walk, right? He had never walked before. And so this miracle is twofold. One, it's helping us see what faith does, but it also helps us to see how faith moves us in, in a new way. It gives you something you've never done before. When you're regenerated and rebirthed, you can now walk. There's one other little important aspect of this. Because Luke is a doctor, he always gives some little nuanced thing about the healing. And so this man's legs were not working. But when he says, stand up, it's this word for straighten. As he says, to straighten your legs, that word ortho, which we get orthopedics from. Okay? So he says, stand up, walk straight. And so here's the idea. He's commanding him to do something he had never done before, which is something that you too can do once you're regenerated, new birth. You can walk in the ways of the Lord. So here's what Paul does. He, he calls us out, but there's going to be um, a response to this. So um, the power brings something in verse 11. And when the crowds saw, that Paul, uh, saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Just as a quick aside here, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they've um, put the power in the, in the wrong person, okay? So Paul had been preaching, and then he healed the man, and their perception is Paul's the guy. Paul's the guy with the power. Common, common mistake um, as the Holy Spirit's doing miracles, but they make this declaration, the gods come down to us in the likeness of men, and Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer a sacrifice um, to them with the crowds. Now, there's a long like, side story about why they had this response, but I don't think it will, I don't think it will be as important to you as this other aspect that I want you to, to know about. And so um, I'm going to skip that side of it today. A lot of commentators point out this, this story or this, this legend that they had about Hermes and Zeus. But here's, here's what the result of placing the power in the wrong person um, brings forth for them. They, they immediately think Paul has this power, not that the Holy Spirit was working through Paul, but um, it, it does not... Um, result in their, their belief in, in God being supreme. And this immediately leads to idolatry and false worship. They want to offer a sacrifice, and they're, they're equating Paul and Barnabas with gods they already know of, they're already familiar with in their worldview, small g gods, right? They have a whole pantheon of gods that are responsible for different things. And when the power behind those gods appears in human form, they assign it to someone and they want to offer worship to it. So placing the power in the wrong thing, right, is if it's not set within the right framework or the right worldview, it's going to wind up in false worship, in idolatry. And so 
the, the, the heart of this is that Jesus must be recognized as the power and the only power that is worthy of worship. See, Satan is crafty. And if we're not vigilant uh, and we're often oblivious to these things, we can become distracted to the schemes that he's actually enacting. And so we occasionally get blindsided about things that are actually going on. So Satan's strategies are to find our weakness and press in on that weakness. And that, and, and that weakness, um, for most of us, happened in, in the last town, right? Where persecution comes, and that's our weakness. We just don't want to be, we don't want to be hated. We just want people to like us. We don't want to have any real heartache or, or difficulty. And that's enough opposition to get us to quit or to change our ways or to shut up, Right? And that's, that's a weakness that Satan, he, he, that button's right, that's the easy button from Staples for Satan. Well, here, what happens, they come into town, they declare this word, that didn't really affect Paul and Barnabas, but now he's going to try a new method, and that method is exaltation and celebration and praise. If persecution doesn't work, maybe you are prone to praise. No one may be hailing you or me as a God or offering sacrifices to us, but we have to recognize um, that, that massive vulnerability in our, in our hearts because we all want to be like, we all have this desire for approval and applause. And so when that's a weakness for us, when, when we get an opportunity, we might just be okay, a little bit okay with, hey, don't, it wasn't us, but if you're having a barbecue anyway, it's okay. We can have it in my honor, right? Like you're tempted to accept a little bit of honor. And you can see from Paul and Barnabas' response to this, that that's not a temptation in their hearts. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, which was a Semitic way of um, recognizing blasphemy. It's what the high priest does when Jesus says, you've said it so, he's made himself uh, the equivalent of God. And so they tear their garments and they rushed out into the crowd and they're crying out. So get this, that the problem here is there's a language barrier. They've been declaring the word of God. There's a miracle that's misinterpreted. And then it says they're declaring in Lyconian, which is a, uh, evidently a, a, a dialect that Paul and Barnabas don't speak. And it's, it's Zeus and Hermes. And they're like, yeah, party. Yeah, like you guys love God. No, then they bring out the, the oxen. They're going to offer these sacrifices. When they learn of this, that's when they're like, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood. Okay? So they, they tear their crowds. They rush into the crowd, and they're crying out, men. Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So there's a, there's a, a strong opposition. There's, there's a, a, a specific word spoken. And um, what Paul does not do in this moment is measure his response. He doesn't say, I don't, want to ins- I don't want to insult your culture and make you guys feel worthless. Um, he just comes right out and says it. And he says, the things that you're doing are vain and worthless. So um, I got to get back to this slide and I apologize. Seeker sensitive versus seeker sensible. This seeker sensitive is a term that got birthed out probably like late 80s, somewhere in there. And it's the idea that in the church, we ought to be... Uh, not just aware, but sensitive to the fact that somebody might be in here that's not familiar with the scriptures or the declarations about the truths of God. 
And so when we deliver the message, we, uh, we, we shouldn't have a barrier in the way of people so that they can't understand what it is that we're actually trying to say. And there is a place for that. The problem is when sensitivity means compromising and not actually, not actually declaring the truth clearly or not feeding the people who already do know what the word of truth is. And so there's a strong distinction that needs to be made between the fact that this is not a church service, what's happening. They've been evangelizing. The response is, um, is one of total heresy, a total misunderstanding. And so Paul just comes out with it, and he's being seeker-sensible. And so the, the worship service that we have here, this gathering, is not the place to be seeker-sensitive. But it is the place to be seeker-sensible. You should be aware that there are people here that may not understand every reference or every Christianese term that I say. And so I should speak slower and use smaller words. I know that. But that's a, that's a problem with me. But I, I want you to understand that what we do here on Sunday mornings is um, a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. And, and we can't compromise on, on that. But we should be sensible to the fact that there are people here that have not yet understood or embraced fully all of the truths of Scripture. And so Paul doesn't go to the Old Testament here. So sensible versus sensitive. I'm going to explain what that is. Paul did not start with the Old Testament, like he was doing in the synagogues with the Jews. He didn't say, well, you know that the Messiah was promised and so on. He, does, he starts with creation. He starts with the testimony of God in the world. And so nature and, and beauty are an argument for God. It is inherent in our conscience that when we live in the world, um, we, we experience something of it, and it should bring us to awe. And wonder, like when you go outside at night and there's not a bunch of light pollution or maybe you're in the mountains or you're just driving in the car and you can look up and you can actually see more than like one star, right? And you look up and you see the vastness of heaven. And Paul uses this uh, a more explicit argument and expanded in Romans 1 to say that kind of testimony in nature leaves man without an excuse. So that by living long enough and seeing what's in the world, your natural conclusion should be, there's something bigger than me. There, there's got to be something else that, that caused all this to be. And so that kind of testimony is called common grace. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a working that God has done in his own creation to testify to himself. But this is exactly the kind of testimony that's being attacked in the world right now. So I want to give you, like, it's not political commentary. It's literally just an observation about what's happening. That the natural and the beautiful is under attack. What should happen naturally between creation, procreating, is what's literally being told that's, that's, not, that's not right, that's, that's wrong, that's bad, that's ugly, which also is a, a byproduct of thinking that everything in the world is mechanical, and so they go to the problem of beauty, and so ugly things are held up, like um, objectively ugly things are held up as beautiful to attack the idea of what true beauty really is. Because in the idea of the, the natural working of the universe and what's beautiful, both of those terminate on us saying there's something bigger than me. And so those are demonic Ideas, those are satanic ideas that are subverting a worldview that should terminate us on the fact that we are not alone. 
So a sensitivity versus sensibility. Paul starts with the natural argument because they can't wiggle around that. There's something inherent in that that you have to say, okay, if I've experienced the world, then I've experienced something of God. And then he can pinpoint what that experience actually is. What is that thing in your heart that's telling you there's something bigger than you? So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't qualify the, the message. He doesn't apologize for it. He, he calls their way of thinking vanity. He says, the way that you're looking at this is vanity. And so sensitivity versus sensibility is measured in the, the, the earnestness or the authenticity of the messenger, the one that's delivering it. And why, why would they choose to be so black and white about it versus some kind of nuanced way of delivering this? And maybe this, the best way to think about it is something like an like a illustration where if your house is on fire, it's burning down, it's the middle of the night, do you want the firefighter to come and knock on your door to see if you're awake, to ask you if you, you would politely exit your home because it's burning down? No, you want the firefighter to come knock your door down and come and drag you out of your abode, right? You don't want them to be nuanced or apologetic. You, you want the full bore, I, I, you need to know this, and I'm not going to let anything stand in your way. It's just going to be, your house is on fire. If you stay in here, you're going to die, right? But the kind of silliness that we think about when we think we should blunt that kind of message, that the, the road that you're on, if, if you don't believe there's a God, that eventually results in hell. You, you're condemned. That kind of bluntness has been lost. We, we think of things like, well, how embarrassing would it be if the neighbors knew that it was my house that was on fire? They should keep it down, right? And that's, that's foolishness. It's, it's silly. And so we, we can't apologize for the fact that there's strong distinctions made because the strong distinction made is the difference between being saved and not saved. The difference between being pulled out of your burning house or being left to be happy, not know about it, but burn. And so... The problem with that kind of thought process is it curses both you and it curses the person that you withhold the truth from. So Paul says, look, in past generations, God, he, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, and satisfying your hearts with, um, and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So again, he, he uses the argument of your experience of common grace. And we forget to appeal to that. We forget to appeal to the fact that it doesn't matter if you knew who God was or not. He's given you good things. He's given you joy and, and, and goodness and, and gladness. But he wants that to not stop there. And the unfortunate thing is that man would, would often rather, in their rebellion to the truth of God, embrace nothingness rather than the implications of a God. If you, if, you, if you say, if you embrace that mechanical worldview where we're, we're the product of time and chance and evolution brought us to this point and here we are, evolved from goo, eventually go far enough back, it started with a big bang. So a big nothing started all this something and all this something that you're experiencing really started with nothing and so that really defines everything all that something 
has nothing. It's truly vanity. It's empty. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's meaningless. And so to ground that in something, if there's a something, well, that something didn't come from nothing. So if there's a God and that God created all this something, there's an implication that's necessary in that. I'm not God because I didn't bring this about. So if there is something and it is God and he created all of this, I'm somewhere down here and he's up there. And that carries with it an implication. And this is what Paul is trying to get them to see. He satisfied you in times past. You were ignorant of who he was, but now he wants you to turn from these vain things. He wants you to turn from an empty nothingness. You can carve an idol. You can make a temple, but that's not a living God. He said, turn to the living God. It says, though, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So we're not God. And we don't always make that connection to the deeper truth. You aren't God, right? So this is what's happened here. They, they, they rush out. They, they try to tell them that this is vanity, what you're thinking, your worldview, the, the way that you're going is, is empty. Turn to the living God. But it says even with these things, they, they scarcely restrain them from offering a sacrifice. And um, what we miss in that is like, oh, whew, they didn't offer the sacrifice. But I also want you to think they were still going to offer the sacrifice to Zeus, to the false god, in honor of them. They, they still had in their hearts a, a, a false worship and that had not been uh, uprooted yet or prevented. So the eventual conclusion of this is to get them to embrace and connect those two ideas, that the, the true power is, is that God that's given you everything, and you ought not to make sacrifices not just to that God or to, to your gods, because um, some people are fine. The pagan notion is that, oh, I like Jesus. He, he seems to be good. I'll add him among the other things that I also like. He's just one of the many sources of power that I could worship. And so... Um, that's sort of the mentality that's, that's happening here. That, okay, we won't sacrifice to you, uh, to our God, for you, but uh, th that they had just compelled them just enough because in verse 19 it says, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. He, he went from your God to public enemy number one. Like things escalated quickly, right? That, that got out of hand here it is, just um, zero, or yeah, with zero to hero, back to, to zero. And the, this is incited by the, the Jews coming from Antioch. Now, you have to understand something. These people were so upset, they traveled a hundred miles just to come find Paul and Barnabas and persecute them, to, to incite further uh, resistance to um, this word. And so uh, the fact that uh, Paul went uh, from zero to hero had something to do with their commitment to opposing the word of truth. And so I want you to understand the commitment level that's required in this opposition. Like, do you get the sense sometimes that opposition is more committed than we are? Because they'll go out of their way to, to make things difficult for you. So when persecution doesn't work and praise doesn't work, well, Satan will just make it painful, okay? I'm just going to make you pay for it. 
And that's what's happened here. There's a definitive place for this, though, in the work of God. There's a definitive place for suffering for the gospel, for the name of Christ. It's what's guaranteed, and it's not that we seek it out for the purpose of being some kind of pain-seeking people, but because it's what happens when we're faithful with the word of truth. It's what happens when we tell people what's really true about the world. So suffering comes. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a long list of all of the dangers and toils and sufferings that he's gone through for the name of Christ. And he says, I was stoned once. That's here. That's at this moment. He's stoned, and they drag him out of the city, supposing that he's dead. And just after that, he, he talks about seeing, uh, he starts referring to himself in third person, and he says, I know a man who went to heaven. And a lot of commentators believe that this is the moment that as he's stoned and drug out of the city that he gets to see into heaven. He said, I saw things there that I, I'm not permitted to speak. And so that, uh, that moment, I think, is, is right here as he, as he drug out of the city. And it says, um, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Okay, so again, moving on is not quitting. And you see it again that after being stoned and dying, he's resurrected and he goes right back in the city to declare the truth. And then he moves on. So he gets stoned, he goes back to preaching, and then he hikes 60 miles the next day. So there's a lot of things we don't know about this because, again, Luke gives details where he wants us to stop and think about things. And we don't have any details. So there's a question, was, was Paul really dead? I don't know. It says, supposing that he's dead. So, so we don't know, but whatever happened... There's different theories on whether or not he was dead, and then he's resuscitated by the circling around of the disciples, and then he goes and carries on about his business, or whether or not he was just knocked unconscious or comatose or something. We don't have those kind of details, and speculating isn't necessarily useful at the moment. So we'll continue this idea next week as um, the message is going forth. And so what we've seen this morning is a series of paradoxes happening because of faithfulness. There's, there's different things occurring depending on what side that somebody's on and how they fall on it. And so the message of gospel and of grace has brought hatred. Isn't that odd that the message of goodness and truth and love incites violence and opposition? The message of God brings frustration because it also brings an identity crisis. It, it tells people that there's a God that's more powerful than they are. And so introspectively, you say, well, if there is a God, I'm not that God. And so that causes a kind of identity crisis that is resolved in, but I can be long to God. I can be one of God's people. We appeal to our experiences of the world, and that challenges our notions about what's true and right. And we also see this paradox of the bolder the speech, the more emphatic the opposition. And the more, the more clear the declaration about who God is, it even escalates into violence. And so the calling and the gathering of new believers in faith to the Lord also divides them from the world. So there's division that happens that's necessarily part of the gospel. And in our weakness, we might be tempted to read the room and say, we're doing the wrong thing. And I want you to know that it's exactly the right thing. It's exactly the right thing. In fact, when you find opposition from the world on the grounds of truth, 
that tells you that you've hit the right mark when you declare the truth and it receives opposition because both are necessarily true. So here's the challenge. There's ways that we can fail in this. We can fail because of our own, our own weaknesses, our own resolve. We might fail at the point of persecution. We might fail at the point of praise. We might fail at the point of pain. There's, there's three real quick ways that we stop and we give up and we decide to cede ground to the enemy. We can fail also in courage or in boldness or in clarity. Those are all ways where we can, we can miss the mark. And in the teeth of danger, we, we forget that we are called to embrace the sufferings of Christ. And so this morning, this is a rhetorical question, and here's how I'll conclude. You need to look into your own heart. If, if it's true that the, the word of truth brings opposition, it divides truth from error. It divides um, people one from another. It brings opposition into your life. If you are living a life that is free of opposition, you are probably living a life that is free of evangelism. If you have no need for courage in your life, if you are not finding points of pain that are a temptation to fail, it's probably because you are not really declaring the word of truth. Whether it's explicitly in your speaking to other people or in your just living your daily lives. I, I could do this. People might think I'm weird for doing that, and so I'll not do that thing lest I be thought of as weird. That's a way of, of dulling the message of truth by how you live. So it doesn't always have to be what you, you speak. And so the question I have this morning is what risks are in your life? What risks have you taken? What, what potential costs have you counted for the sake of Christ? And if your life is free of those, you might examine what point of failure might be in your heart. Take courage. <laughs> because it's, it's, not, it's not you that's going to fix the world and it's not you that's going to overcome the world. It's not you that's going to make everything happen. It is God. But remember that the victory is promised, the overcoming is promised by holding fast to Christ in faith. So we remember that the judgment is guaranteed and it begins with us. It begins with us committing to the fact that the, the judgment comes first with our, our dedication to the foundation, and then we get overcoming of the world. Father, I pray this morning um, that this word um, would both encourage